You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. How many of you went to VBS when you were growing up? Okay, so practically all of you. Um, some of you were spared that, so that's good news for you. Um, for those of you unaware of what VBS is, it's an acronym that means Vacation Bible School, and it's very popular in, uh, in evangelical churches, and not just evangelical churches, I should say, but across the denominational spectrum. And essentially, it's what, four or five days in the middle of the summer uh, that churches uh, basically hold Bible camp for kids that are out of school and it's complete with like snacks and games and little Bible lessons and it's very theme. So the theme might be like Noah's Ark and the curriculum might be called Ark Encounter and everything was about, you know, Noah's Ark, including the snacks and the games and the Bible lesson. Well, anyway, here at Central, we do VBS as well, but we call it VBS for Heretics, and we do it in the summer every year, practically every year. And this year, the next two Sundays, this Sunday and next, we are doing it here on Sunday mornings. And our theme is the Gospels. And I want to address the question, what are the four Gospels? Notice I said address and not answer, because... In my opinion, the more I study the Gospels, the more I feel that they're not just one thing, they are many things. And I wanna talk about all those things that they are or might be here. And by that, I mean, I think the Gospels are history and biography. I think they are midrash and folk tales and uh, what they call a translation fable. Uh, they're also prophecies. They're also parables. I like the way John Caputo puts it. Jesus didn't just tell parables. Jesus was a parable. And so it's all that. There's a lot going on there. And so we're going to hopefully unpack that in the next two Sundays. That's a lot to talk about in two Sundays, but we're going we're gonna to try to do that. And because the Gospels are so many things and not just one thing, um, you could respond to that and say, well, that means that means we don't really know what the Gospels are. That's, that's one response, but there's another response, and that is, no, we, we can know what the Gospels are. It's just that there, there are many things, and I prefer the second response, I, and I think most, most of scholarship would, would agree with me on that. So the first thing we need to do in a study like this is define what the word gospel actually means. For some of you, this might be a little rote. This is stuff you might have heard before. The word gospel itself comes from the Greek word euangelion, if I'm pronouncing that right, which is also the word we get evangelism from. So gospel evangelism, euangelion, means proclamation or good news. So when we talk about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John being gospels, what that means is they're the proclamation or the good news of Jesus of Nazareth, or perhaps better put, they are the, the proclamation or the good news about, about Jesus of Nazareth. But that still doesn't answer what that good news is or what these texts are 
who wrote them and why. So let's let's dive into those questions about the origins, the dating, and the authorship of the four Gospels. And to be clear, I'm in line with the majority of New Testament scholarship here, which is to say I'm in line with what's called the liberal scholars. They're the majority. The, the, the conservative scholars are more in the minority. And the liberal scholars hold that the Gospels were written, Mark was written first, probably around the year 70 CE. CE simply means common era, synonymous with AD. It's just a, le a less Christianized way of putting it. Mark was probably written around 70 CE. Matthew and Luke were probably written 10 years later, between 80 and 90. And John was probably written last, around the turn of the century, around 100 CE. Now, Conservative scholars would maintain that, no, the Gospels were written, Mark was probably still written first, but they were all written by the original disciples of Jesus within a decade after his departure, between 30 and 40 CE, they would say. And, and they would maintain that the Gospels are eyewitness accounts written by the eyewitnesses themselves. Uh, there's lots of problems with that conservative dating and that conservative view, the, not the least of which is that I think we can know quite clearly that the Gospels are not eyewitness accounts. For example, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're told, goes and prays by himself, quite a distance from his disciples, who we're told are actually sleeping at the time, and then he, and he prays. Are we, are we to assume that Jesus, moments before he was arrested, because that happened right after he got done praying, that, that he quickly you know, divulged to his disciples what, what exactly he prayed so that they could record it for posterity? And what of Jesus's trials before the chief priests and Pontius Pilate? The disciples weren't present for those. How could they have been? These were private interrogations. How could they have known the dialogue that took place, the interrogation that took place in Jesus's response? Are we to conclude that the chief priests and Pontius Pilate held a press conference immediately following so that the disciples might know what was said? Of course not. And what if Jesus's words from the cross were told, were told by both Matthew and Mark that none of the disciples were present at the cross at Golgotha? They had all scattered, remember? Scattered upon his arrest. We're told that some of the women like Mary Magdalene and others were watching him be crucified, but they were at a great distance. They weren't actually even present. They were watching from afar, we're told. How then could they know Jesus's words from the cross? Again, it, th there's other examples we could go on. The gospels are quite clearly on their own account, not eyewitness testimony. But let's remember that that has been, I mean, I don't think that bothers the original audience, the original audience of the Gospels, the, the original receivers of these texts must have known that. And I don't think it could have bothered them because I think they were much more interested in the social and the theological meaning, the social and theological meaning of Jesus's life and story and, and teachings rather than a forensic retelling of exact history as it occurred. The latter is a much more modern concern than an ancient one. And this brings up the important issue of historiography. That's an important word to know. Historiography. 
This is the study of how history is written. Historiography is not the study of history per se. Historiography is the study of how history is written and how history is defined by different cultures, because not every culture defines history the same. You know, we again, we moderns have a very wooden, a very rigid historiography, very kind of rigid definition of what is history. History for us is a kind of objective endeavor where biases and agendas do not factor in, well, supposedly. Of course they do. But our definition of history is that it's a scientific endeavor, a forensic retelling of past events as they actually occurred literally and physically. That that's what history is, according to us, according to moderns, post-enlightenment Western Europeans. But for most of history, most of time, most cultures, history, myth, and legend all kind of went, went together. They were not as concerned about a forensic, scientific, literal retelling of the past in order to dictate to the present or the future you know, exactly what happened and all that. No, their, their, under, their historiography was loaded with understandings of, you know, you know, theological understanding. They had political agendas. They had theological agendas. They had social agendas. History for them was mixed with myth and legend. They didn't delineate between these things. And I'm talking not just about the Israelites, but practically all of the ancient world. We study their texts and we know this. And the Gospels are no exception to this ancient historiography. The Gospels, to be clear, the Gospels are history and biography. I'm absolutely saying they are. But, however, their understanding of history and biography are really different than ours today. So when you hear me say, yes, they're history and biography, I am saying that the historiographical understanding of what history was back then, what biography was back then, is quite different than ours. We need to respect that as students of the Bible. There's something really ironic about the fact that evangelicals worship and revere this book so much and yet are woefully inept at understanding its literary features, right? We here endeavor to take the Bible as it is. Well, that's very evangelical of me to say, is it? You know what I mean. All right. So the names of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where did those come from? Keep in mind that the Gospels themselves are anonymous. They're anonymous. Where do the names Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John come from? Well, they come from editors and scribes in the second century. A hundred years after these Gospels were written, they were given these names, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of John. Those names were given them a century later, but the Gospels themselves are anonymous and not written by eyewitnesses, nor do they purport to be. That's interesting. Again, most scholars believe Mark was the first written probably around the year 70 AD, but 40 years after Jesus, Matthew and Luke came later. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what's called the synoptic gospels because they are synopses. I think that's the pl plural of synoptic. Synopses 
of each other, which means that they correspond in much of their content. And actually, word and phrasing itself, they often are identical. And the sequence of events often line up, you know, A, B, C, one, two, three. Um, and it's important to understand that, again, Matthew and Luke use Mark as their primary source, but we're not quite sure what their other sources were. Those texts didn't survive. And of course, the question comes up, well, where did Mark get his information? Because it's quite clear that Mark had a source or two. Well, those texts didn't really survive. And keep in mind that there was approximately a 40-year you know, gap there between Jesus and when Mark was written. And we know from actually from Luke's account that, because Luke begins his account, and whoever wrote Luke, I mean, begins their account by saying, I'm giving another account of the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, like so many others have done. Luke points to the fact that many others have done what I'm about to do. Uh, but, so here's my rendition. So Luke is saying, yes, there's a whole tradition out there. There's other written accounts, but we don't have those. And it's quite clear that the stories about Jesus and his teachings were passed down orally first, meaning they weren't written down. In a culture where 95% of the population was illiterate, communicating or passing down stories was done orally, spoken, not written. And we know this. We know this about not just the Gospels, but for most of the Bible, most of what we find in there began as oral tradition, and the Gospels are no exception to that. Um, and this raises a host, all kinds of questions about the reliability of those stories. If you've ever played the game telephone before, you know how difficult it is or how stories change as they're passed down orally, yes? All right, so this raises questions about the reliability of those stories and how they must have changed over time. Consider also the fact that Jesus and his contemporaries spoke Aramaic, which is a dead language. Nobody speaks Aramaic anymore. And for a long time, they haven't. Jesus and his contemporaries spoke Aramaic, but the Gospels, like the rest of the New Testament, was written in Koine Greek, which is an ancient Greek, which is also a dead language, by the way. That's important to understand, because whatever stories were in circulation about Jesus had to be translated from Aramaic into Koine Greek. And if you know anything about translation, especially if you're bilingual, you know that every translation is also by definition an interpretation because words in one language do not necessarily line up, have direct or equal counterpart parts in other languages. Often there's gaps in meaning and quite often in one language, there just aren't concepts and words in the other language for those words, <laughs> right? I and mean, this is even with modern languages, like translating things from French to Japanese. There's just words that don't translate, concepts and ideas that literally don't translate because the cultures are different. The philosophies of mind are different. The worldviews are different. The definitions of reality are different. Even in modern cultures like today, to say nothing of Aramaic and Greek, you know, what was going on in Mesopotamia around the late Bronze Age, you know, and what was going on in Greece. Talking about different worlds, practically. 
These are the real troubles of what we find in the text. All right. I don't say all this, to be clear, I don't say all this to harm our faith or to destroy the reliability of the Gospels, but rather to give us the most informed understanding of the Gospels as possible. I want us, you deserve it, to know these things. Lots of churches won't tell you these things because, obviously, it's kind of deconstructive. It raises doubts, raises the anxiety level in the room, right? Lots of churches, lots of pastors know these things because they went to seminary or even an undergraduate degree in Bible will give you this information, but they withhold it from their congregations, uh, which is a form of lying. Anyway, that's, that's a side topic, perhaps. Now, a word of encouragement. I want to encourage you here this morning. The Gospels as we have them today, right there in your pew, if there's a Bible in your pew, the Gospels as we have them today are virtually identical to the manuscripts we have in the second and third centuries. That's amazing. Take a moment and let that sink in. What that means is that the, the traditions and stories we have of Jesus, which means the traditions and stories that informed and defined early Christianity from at least the second century, if not before, those stories, those traditions, have, main, have maintained remarkable continuity over 18 centuries. That's amazing. That's remarkable because scribes in the church I mean, religiously copied these texts, literally and metaphorically. I mean, it was a serious job. 18, we, we can be confident because we have the early manuscripts from the second century, we can be confident about the continuity of these stories and these traditions from at least that. And so we can trust that the Gospels as we have them are reliable sources and witnesses of the Christianity being practiced, at least in the second century church. And I think that's remarkable. And it gives us confidence that we are connected today to our early Christian ancestors. Do we know that the Gospels as we have them are, are the same as their original texts, meaning their original autographs? No, we do not know that. Do we know what Jesus of Nazareth really said and did? No, we do not know that. But we do know that he deeply affected his audience in ways that changed their lives for the better and inspired them to tell stories about him, to keep his memory alive, and to eventually write down these stories and painstakingly copy them and preserve them. We know that. We know that they created a Jesus tradition that later became what we call Christianity. And I think that's amazing. But to be clear, it's that Jesus tradition that the church created is responsible for. And it's that tradition that became Christianity. Therefore, being a Christian means identifying not so much with the historical Jesus of Nazareth, who we don't really have access to, 
But being a Christian means identifying with the Jesus tradition that grew up around him. And I don't think there's anything wrong about that. I think we should think of Jesus not so much as an individual, but as an icon. Not so much as a person, but as a persona. He was larger than life, and therefore his story and his memory and the movement that was generated out of that is also larger than life. And that's a good thing. That's a cool thing. I'm saying it's, it's the movement and the Jesus tradition that is the only Jesus we have and the only Jesus we need. It's the persona of Christ that matters. It's the icon that matters, not so much the individual, who we don't really have much access to. Think of it this way. There's a saying in Buddhism that goes, if you ever meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. <laughs> this is often interpreted to mean that Buddhism isn't really about the Buddha himself. It's not about the worship of the Buddha or the attempt to discover, to reclaim the true and actual Buddha of history in order to you know, practice the one true and pure form of Buddhism, as if there is such a thing. No. Such pursuit to actually miss the point of Buddhism. The point is to discover who Buddha is to you, or the point is to connect with the Buddhist tradition that grew up out of his teachings and story, a tradition that took on a life of its own, and therefore is always evolving and changing with the context and the times. Buddha himself, arguably, would not want it any other way. <laughs> so in a sense, to really be a Buddhist, one must first kill the Buddha, so to speak. And I think that's true for Christianity as well. In order to follow Christ, in a way, we must first kill Christ. We must kill this idolatrous pursuit for the historical Jesus, as if that will give us some pure, true, original form of Christianity that's better than all the others or something. Instead, we must embrace the Christian tradition. We must embrace the Christian tradition that grew up out, around him. And this idea that, that we too are the sons and daughters of God, which of course is an idea that we find taught by the Jesus in the Gospels, that we too are the sons and daughters of God. We too have the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that, in, that inspired and illuminated him is the same spirit that illuminates and inspires us. The same spirit teaches us, we would say, and leads us into all truth. This is uh, like Richard Rohr's concept of the universal Christ, which I really like, which he actually gets from the medieval church mystics and, of course, parts of the New Testament. The universal Christ is this understanding that Christ was not Jesus's last name. As you've heard, Jesus H. Christ was not his real name. Christ simply is Greek. It's a Greek word. It means the anointed one or the incarnation of the, of the divine, of divine wisdom, the logos, the divine animating power of the universe, the divine wisdom that undergirds reality was in somehow, some way incarnated in human form in the persona of Jesus of Nazareth. But this idea of the universal Christ is, is this idea that that same spirit is incarnated in us. 
that there is something universal and archetypal about Jesus that is recurrent in history and recurrent in us. Rory is talking about a recurrent expression of divine truth and divine love that can exist and does exist anywhere at any time and can be found in anyone. Christ wasn't just there. Christ is here. Christ is in you. Christ is in me. The spirit of Christ is found wherever the loving, life-giving, and liberating presence of God is found. For Richard Rohr, Christ is less of an individual and more of an icon, less of a person and more of a persona, a spirit, if you will. And this is exactly how I think we should understand him. And I think that understanding is more in line with the Gospels, what the Gospels are, what we find in them, and what they were intended to do for us. All right. Usually we'd have communion at this time to give everybody sort of a, a mental break before we go into Q&A, but we've already done communion. Um, we want to open it up for conversation, dialogue, question, comments, what stood out to you? What moved you? What did you like? What didn't you like? Anything really goes. <laughs> what questions do you have about the Gospels or about the historical Jesus of Nazareth or the import therein? Um, yeah, anybody online or in person. Yeah, Jen. Let me give you this. I don't, I think this mic works. Yes, it does. I'll go ahead and get this started. Mm. <laughs> um, I think I may have said this before here, but I remember start when I was. Max, could you, I'm sorry, could you give me that mic? Can we give her this one? Thanks. Okay. Just gonna throw this book out one day. <laughs> okay. Um, I think when I was beginning my journey kind of back to church after leaving for a long time, um, I went to a United Methodist Church, and uh, that was where I kind of learned <laughs> who Jesus really was. And it was what, at a Methodist church. At a yeah, Methodist church. Um, who Jesus really was and what he was all about, because he wasn't about like don't cut your hair and women wear skirts. He was about love for your enemy and for your neighbor and taking care of the poor and, you know, treating everyone equally. Um, and I remember learning that and being like, wow, if I had learned this when I was a child, like if this had been the focus of my Christian education, so many things would have been different. You know, like he wasn't, Jesus didn't come here to judge us on how, I don't know, how Christian we were and were we Christian enough. It was more just about lo love. Um, so I think if I had known that early on, things would have been a lot different. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true for a lot of us. And you reminded me of a joke I heard recently. Um, this Jewish comedian 
she said, um, I'm approached all the time by Christians being like, why don't you convert away from Judaism and become, become a Christian? And, and she says, um, you know, she's like, and she responds to something like, you know that saying, you guys love, what would Jesus do? Like, oh yeah, yeah. Like, well, Jesus would be Jewish. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You just reminded me of that little aside. But no, I, absolutely. You know, sometimes I'm told by people who encounter Central, either just through like stuff that I say or they listen to the podcast, they'll say, wow, if I had grown up that way, I wouldn't be in deconstruction or I would have stayed in the church if I had you know, grown up with this understanding that you guys embody. Yeah. yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Diana, um, Jen, would you mind passing that to her? Okay. I have a question yes, and I'm going to apologize because I did not grow up in Christianity. So this maybe right. is like a very obvious thing. You, you grew up Unitarian. Right? Unitarian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So very basic knowledge of the Bible. Um, so I guess I always understood the Bible as being, you know, God passing all of this information down through these people and they're writing it. So you spoke about with the gospels that they weren't there to actually hear Jesus's last words or, you know, he, see his, him praying. So how do you reconcile those two things? If God should have spoken to these people and given them this information. So are you asking me, Oh, okay. So or not you, but like modern, no, I see what you're you saying. Know, like, like a devil's advocate argument would be like, well, no, God dictated to the gospel writers, you know, in their hut, you know, exactly mm -hmm. what took place. So they didn't need to be eyewitnesses. They're eyewitnesses to the revelation in their, you know, while they're writing. Yeah. Well, and it says, when you open it up, this is the word of God. And that's what my mother always yeah. uses where it's like, well, this is the word of God. If you then don't believe that these things are literal and true and actually happened, then you're already going against the Bible. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, to be honest, uh, that conservative argument, you know, it's, it's, it's impervious to reason, first of all. So there's not like, but if I had to debate such a person, I would maybe point to the different resurrection accounts uh, found in the Gospels, and the fact that not all the stories do line up, in particular, you know, kind of a biggie, what we would say, in, you know, biggie, the resurrection. Uh, all, my, my understanding is that all four Gospels, correct me if I'm wrong, seminarians, but all four Gospels have a slightly or significantly different retelling of the resurrection. Who was there? Who saw what? <laughs> was it an angel that was present, or was, you know, was Jesus, you know, there, there's there's radical in some ways differences between the so if so if in fact they were receiving divine dictation while they're writing these texts why didn't God get it, get the story straight <laughs> uh, you know it raises the question about how reliable God's understanding of of the events were then <laughs> which uh, we as soon as you go down that road I think most people that don't have a bias or a vested interest say it's pretty obvious that this is not you know, what, whatever conservatives are saying it is. This is a lot more prosaic than that. Um, earthy, so to speak. Understood. Um, yeah, does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, that really helps. It's a good question. Because that's, that's the, I mean, when we deal with her conservative family, that, that always, it's hard to yeah. have a conversation with people if that's how they're viewing the Bible. Yeah. But then once you poke a little hole in there, I don't know. Yeah, you know, I mean, if if you wanna if you wanna start some real trouble, just walk them through the different <laughs> resurrection accounts. 
I, I had a professor in seminary that addressed that. And he said, well, what would we expect from people that were so shocked by this amazing event? Of course, we're going to get different accounts. That would be another kind of conservative take. On it. Well, of course, there's different accounts. These people were beside themselves. Um, but then again, there's still problems there for biblical inerrantists who say that everything in there is factual and literal and you know, scientifically correct. Well, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, good stuff. Emily, did you have something? Yeah. Well, I was, I whispered to Diana during this whole thing is like my father has, he's willing to look at the people who fought for slavery and did the, flew the Confederate flag. He's willing to look at them in their historical context to not blame them for how they were, right? Okay. But he's not willing to look at the Bible in its historical context because it's supposed to have through the ages stayed the same oh, yeah. so that we all have to live by these rules. Therefore, the clobber scriptures and all this kind of stuff, they still hold up. Yep. So it's, I mean, we're always going to be here every week where they just <laughs> pick and choose things that they, you know, and like you said, it's like, as soon as you poke a hole, all of a sudden, and they can just go, well, you know, um, that's doubting and you're allowing evil to come in. And so you have to keep your head. And it's just like, I mean, that's a cult, yeah. honestly. So it's like, we can't even have this conversation. We're not even on the same wavelength at all, right. you know? Yeah. Historiography doesn't even factor into, again, because conservatism, evangelicalism, fundamentalism is predicated on an epistemology of ignorance. It is reliant upon an aversion to expertise, an aversion to critical inquiry, a, a complete aversion to any kind of, frankly, reason. Um, I'm being maybe a little, a little hyperbolic there, maybe not impervious to all reason, but, but those, because it's, you know, it's providing catharsis, it's psychological relief. It's not hard to understand why they're that way, because like all of, all of us, including us, we, we dread death. We, we, we fear death. We fear the meaninglessness, the abyss that we are all staring into. Those of us who can acknowledge that have undergone deconstruction and have found a way of embracing reality. Those who have not stay within their cults and stay within their, their, their colloquial uh, enclaves of ignorance because it's, it's catharsis. It's easier. It's an escape. And it's comforting to not have to look at yourself. So, uh, hold it up a little higher, Emily. Sorry. It's comforting to them and familiar to not have to like deal with anything. Yes. Especially if like someone like my mother, she has so much trauma in her past that she doesn't, this saves her from that. Yes. It keeps her from having to dig things up and deal with them. She just gets to go, I'm forgiven and I forgive them and it's done. And so she just continues her, you know, yeah. bad behavior because she's forgiven and forgives all. And that's the whole point, you yeah. know? Thank you for sharing all that. Yeah. Um, uh, Leanne. Hi, uh, great discussion. Um, something that was great for me and kind of finding some sort of peace with understanding the gospels. Um, there's this book called The Gospel According to Jesus by Stephen Mitchell. It's very fascinating. He basically took all of the passages that the Jesus Council said were like most likely actually said by Jesus and kind of created one 
like gospel of just like the accounts of his that historically speaking most likely were like closest to maybe actually having happened and then he puts it in one thing and it's kind of like one story and it's a very interesting read because when i read it i was like oh great like this is the gospel I've been waiting for, the actual historical probability of what really happened to a person who was executed by the Roman imperial world. And then I read it and I was like, but I really like the story about the sharing of the bread and how now there's enough bread for everyone. And I like the road to, I can't remember the name, the road to Emmaus or whatever, after he is raised from the dead and it's like, you see someone that has died in another person, like it's got a beautiful symbolism to it. So it was helpful for me to read something that was like, what if I just took all of the most likely historical bits and put it into one book? And then to kind of miss all of the, the in my mind, others may disagree, but kind of the mythos and the, the kind of symbolic metaphorical parts and see it anew in terms of, oh, maybe, the fish and the bread, that's not about whether or not fish or bread literally multiplied that day. It's about what if we always have a position of, yes, we have enough for everyone. What if it's about this other thing? It's not about this one time. There was a lot of fish. I don't care. I care like if we're thinking about our community as never closing a door or saying, I'm sorry, we don't have enough for you. What if we change our way of thinking? So for me, it helped to like, just see the most likely historical version and then realize how much richness there was beyond that. Yeah, no, that was really good, Leanne. Absolutely. What's the name of that book again? It's called The Gospel According to Jesus. And it is a really interesting read. There's also yeah. lots of quotes by Tolstoy and Nietzsche um, and Je Thomas Jefferson and different people on their different thoughts of the Bible and the Gospels. Yeah. So it's very interesting. L Luminaries of the Enlightenment. Uh, but that's great. That's awesome. Um, yeah, and, and something called the Jesus Seminar. I don't know if you've heard of that that's, before. Yeah, that's it. Oh, is that it? Is, is that what it's based on? Yeah, it's like all the bits from the Jesus Seminar yeah. that were most likely said by Jesus put yeah, yeah. into the one thing. The, the Jesus Seminar was and is, I think, still existent. Um, at least it was back in the 90s and early 2000s. Collection of, you know, top New Testament scholars get together every year in Santa Maria, actually, from they gather there from all over the country for like a weekend where basically they discuss um, the words of Christ and the Gospels, and then they rank them according to what they think is most likely originally Jesus and what is most definitely, and they have like, I forget how they score it, but it's like on a three or five scale of probability with like the five being like, this definitely was just put words in his mouth by his early followers, you know, where the one is, this is more than likely original Jesus content. And so they, these very smart minds get together and they put all that stuff together, which of course is really scandalous, <laughs> you know, for the, for conservatives are like, what? I remember hearing that about that in college in my undergraduate uh, biblical studies department at Lipscomb and my professor, went to the Jesus seminar and he said, I mean, I went, but I didn't really partake. And he, he put it like the way that Clinton talked. He's like, I smoked, but I didn't inhale, you know, um, but I could tell he was into it. All those guys were closet progressives. Anyway, whatever. Um, yeah, good stuff, man. Uh, other thoughts, remarks, questions, comments? Uh, venting. Yeah, sure. Uh, can you pass it back to Ann? Thank you. Hi, sorry. Um, 
I still have a lot of friends and family in the conservative Christian world, um, particularly my family in the South and friends in the South. And um, it's been hard as I've been deconstructing because I can't share that with them for one thing. So it's this gap in our relationship to some degree. They get some of my snarky comments about it. So they, they, they know a little bit of where I am, but they have no idea really. And um, it's been hard over the years because I, the longer, so this is less about your sermon and more about your comment, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, um, because I see them more and more and more as being in a cult. And I come back so sad and heavy every time I go and visit them because it's, it's like I can, I don't feel like I have a whole lot of answers, but that's kind of the point for me at this point. And so it's not like I can go in and tell them, no, you need to believe this. Cause I don't even, I'm still deconstructing it. I don't even know a hundred percent what I believe. And I don't know that I ever will. They, on the other hand, have a deep, deep need to know what they believe. And I'm slowly, slowly, slowly coming to the point where um, when I see them, now I recognize I'm in a different situation than you guys in terms of the harm they can cause to me directly. So this is more of a philosophical thing between us. Um, but the more I can see them as trapped in a system where the amount of loss they would have to take to leave that system and the the fear that comes with that the more sympathetic i am to them i don't agree with 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 philosophically where they are with theologically with their conclusions with um some of the harms that that causes but the more i can understand like like i used to have this feeling from trauma that i can't cry because if i cry i will never stop and i kind of equate that to where they are like i can't leave because i would be losing everything my community my beliefs my foundation my certainty everything like their life is so wrapped up in it and that's helped me. That may not be helpful to you at all. I, or maybe, I don't know, but it's, it's just been helping me lately to try to, instead of feel like I need to offer them any kind of correction, that this is where they are because of their own psychological trauma or, or needs or whatever. And because I imagine that most of us in this room are people who don't deal with cognitive dissonance very well. Like I can't do cognitive dissonance. That's what has led me away from evangelicalism is like, I can't have those contradictions. I can live with uncertainty. I can't live with co cognitive dissonance. And I was just with a friend who said, um, who had a situation in her life that made her really question God. And then I was shocked. I mean, like atheist kind of question God from a e deep evangelical position. 
And then just a couple of things happened and she went directly back because she needed that comfort. And the more I can understand that about them, it doesn't, it doesn't excuse harm that they're causing, but I can at least kind of get where they're coming it gives from. You a, it sounds like it gives you compassion. Yeah. yeah. Without a kind of, it's not condescension. I'm here, I hear compassion. Yeah. I think that's beautiful. And, and I think we need to make room for that with our loved ones um, that are stuck. And remember that we were. Yeah, I think that's helpful. And I love how you put that in. Uh, you can deal with uncertainty, but you can't handle the cognitive dissonance. <laughs> There's a difference there. I love that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that. Um, well, good stuff, everybody. Um, any, anybody else want to say anything before we... Yeah, Emily, so looks like you want to jump back in. Cool, cool. It's all good. I have a hard time not responding. No, it's good. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, she was looking at you the right, whole time. It's uh, right. And I, I like I've just figured out like here, like I do think we all sort of in this room have <clears throat> the inability to believe in something that goes against your inner logic. Like you're just like, wait, this isn't, I can't move forward until I figure out what this is. I'm okay with uncertainty, but someone like my mother, like you said, like she's Pandora's box, like all of her stuff that she's dealt with, her religion has given her an escape. Therefore, I should look at her as I'm a little bit further ahead because my journey has led me here to a place where, and my religion helped me in certain times of my life as well. And her journey looks different than mine and that's okay. But some people need that. You know, my cousin has to make sense of why she's in a terrible marriage and why her daughter had a cyst in the back of her head that, you know, and now she has this thing for the rest. Like she has to make sense of the suffering that she's dealing with. And so it, give, it makes her go deeper into that. Um, I hope that they will find a freeness at some point that I have in this deconstruction um, because I feel like it takes off so much pressure. We don't have to judge others. We don't have to um, compare ourselves to anyone. We are perfect in the way that we are. And I think that's, we were made this way. I was made to marry her, that's what I feel. And if you're telling me that that's not right for me, that's not right for you to do, but you can't see that that's that. So yeah, everyone's journey is different. Um, I hope people get to this point. Cause like I said, for me, it's been awesome. Um, but yeah, I don't know how I really feel either. And I guess I can't judge someone if they don't know where they are, or if they believe they're somewhere where they, <laughs> they think they're in their truth but you know it is what it is but we do have to have compassion for people and seeing that i think is important because it's harder for them to see compassion for us than it is for us to see it for them thank you for that uh, i love the dialogues that we get into here on sunday mornings and uh, i know you do too um let's conclude um and i want to conclude with this benediction as we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Go in peace, my dear friends. Thanks for being here.